This is Dr. Rob Harder with the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, making your world better. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? What are the biggest challenges? What are the biggest obstacles? How should nonprofits fundraise in an economy that is constantly changing? All of these reasons combined led me to start this show. And it's my hope that through this series, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear from effective leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy the show as together we hear how they are making their world better. I think everyone would agree that there are some really difficult challenges in our world today, both in our own country and internationally. And that could be economically, socially, politically, the list goes on. Additionally, there seems to be a growing divisiveness within our own country. So my question today is, what are we to do in this divisive environment we find ourselves in? Well, my guest today thinks it starts from within by recognizing one's worth individually, while at the same time recognizing the dignity and worth of every human being. Timothy Shriver is my guest today. He has been both CEO and chairman of the Special Olympics for over 25 years. He currently leads the International Board of Directors for the Special Olympics and serves together with over 5.6 million Special Olympic athletes in 172 countries to promote health, education, and a more unified world through the joy of sports. He serves on many prestigious boards, has a New York Times bestselling book, and has produced four films. Enjoy today's show. Well, welcome to the show, Tim. For those who may not know the history of the Special Olympics, your mother, Eunice, started the Special Olympics officially, as I understand, in 1968. From what you observed and learned over the years, why was this such a passion for your mother? You know, in 1968, my mom was living a couple of very powerful experiences. The first, I think, was that she had been living for a long time uh, with uh, loving her sister, who happened to have an intellectual disability. And she'd seen throughout the course of her lifetime how much injustice there was, just flat-out bigotry, you know, prejudice, oppression even, uh, and so much disdain, so much indifference to her sister, so much... Uh, ignorance about who her sister was. So that deep wellspring of frustration and love and anger was welling up within her, I think, by the time 1968 rolled around. She'd been working in this field for 20 years already by then, you know, working with doctors, working with social workers, educators, researchers of various sorts and types. But nothing had broken through to change that deep cultural problem, the ways in which her sister felt and was experiencing so much isolation. I think the second thing that was going on there was that she was a woman. And in her day, uh, you know, the women, both in her family and in the culture, didn't really have the kinds of opportunities to lead. And she was a natural-born leader. She was a person with a vision. She knew how to achieve it. She knew how to get people to follow it. Uh, so she was ready to lead. And, uh, you know, the traditional pathways to leadership were not open to her. So she decided to do it her own way. She had to find her own sources, her own uh, angle, her own experience. In the end, her own movement in order to try to share her own sense of uh, leadership with, with the country. And then finally, you know, she loved sports. And, uh, again, quite unusual for uh, a woman growing up in the 20s and 30s and 40s to find herself uh, a jock, an athlete, someone who always wanted to compete. Uh, and uh, so somehow she loved her sister deeply. She was angry at the injustice she faced. Uh, she wanted opportunities to lead a change, and she felt that sport might be, ironically, ended up being one of the most powerful vehicles for encounter and social and personal and spiritual transformation 
around people with intellectual disabilities the world had ever seen. So in 1968, I think all that came to a head, you know, on the field in Chicago at Soldier Field in an empty stadium with a thousand people with intellectual disabilities coming from the hidden places of society. And she stood up in front of them and said, hey, guess what? Uh, you have a gift to give. You have Olympic human uh, greatness within you, and you are being challenged now to reveal to the world a whole new way of being great. And from those initial moments, a movement exploded because I think of that uh, powerful message. Well, I'd love hearing where things begin because there's no doubt over the last 50 years, the Special Olympics now has been at the forefront of inclusion. I mean, opening doors for those with intellectual and physical disabilities. I mean, now it's a ubiquitous term right in our culture today. And so from your perspective, what has been the most important impact the Special Olympics have had on our country and our world? Well, I think the most important impact is on individuals. I think you know, Rob, you know this. I think people of faith have an intuitive understanding of this, but I think, you know, we have to meet. You know, it always starts with the encounter. It always starts with some moment in which we're eye to eye with someone else, in which we're heart to heart, which we see another person up close, personal. We see the intimacy. We see the common human struggle. We see the common human desire for love, for belonging, for purpose. I think in the end of the day, the Special Olympics movement's greatest gift has been to create millions and millions, I would almost say millions a year of moments in which human beings cross this great chasm that separates us from one another and find themselves uh, shaking hands, looking into the eye, seeing someone with Down syndrome who's 12 years old, whose eyes are sparkling, looking up, arms raised, cheering herself, being cheered by her mom and saying, oh my goodness, I never would have seen this. I couldn't imagine how beautiful this moment could be. I didn't know who you were. I never uh, could possibly have guessed the gifts, the openness, the trust, the wisdom that lies within you. These moments of encounter, uh, you can't quantify them quite so easily. They're a little harder to measure. But I think over the years, when we look at the numbers, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 million Americans alive today have probably had some contact with one of those moments. Uh, in the Special Olympics movement. And for that, I think we can thank the athletes themselves who have led and been the inspiration in those moments. But we can all be grateful, those of us who are not uh, necessarily walking around with the label of disability, but who have our own hidden disabilities. We all do. But we can be grateful that those Special Olympics athletes welcomed us, saw us, invited us, and met us uh, eye-to-eye and heart-to-heart, and for many of us changed the, the course of our lives. Well, I love that vision you just shared, and, and I know this has become very personal for you, not just because your mother started the Special Olympics, but because of your own committed involvement with the Special Olympics. But let me ask you, what first drew you into leadership with the Special Olympics, and why have you continued to do this for so many years now? Well, the, the wonderful thing about, you know, I, 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 leadership is a funny term, and I know you're, you're an expert on it, and I'm not. Uh, I guess my first opportunity was when I was four or five years old, and my mom was doing summer camps for kids with special needs, and I was a camper. So at the very earliest of ages, I was what we now would call a unified partner. I was a kid who did not have a diagnosis of a disability, playing alongside, competing with, sharing my day with uh, children my age, but who had special needs and who otherwise, if it hadn't been for my mom, I would never have met. So My first experiences were very, very young. By the time I was in high school, I was trying to organize a a local Special Olympics event in my high school with a 
classmate of mine. We we didn't do a very good job, but we worked like crazy. And I it taught me that the hardest thing in the world is to organize a local event. And I, I have great respect for our volunteers who do that thousands and thousands of times a year. And then, you know, by the time I reached my 20s and 30s, I was working in education. And I was became very interested in how do you teach the heart? How do you teach empathy and kindness? How do you teach self-regulation, self-awareness? How do you teach pro-social values? How do you teach people how to overcome their anger and transform it into positive action that will make a difference? I was, you know, I was teaching English, but I was really interested in teaching those other values. And I all of a sudden realized, gee, you know, Special Olympics doesn't have a textbook, it doesn't have a classroom, it doesn't have a chalkboard, it doesn't have a test of the traditional variety. But oh my goodness, does it have a lesson? And I started to serve on a local board in my town in, in, in Connecticut and in New Haven and then the state of Connecticut. I, I got on the board and started to see the opportunities to grow the movement and challenge other people to join us. And uh, one thing led to another. <laughs> well, you've certainly had a lot of experience. And as you look back over your life and of all the people who have shaped you into the person you are today, who shaped you the most as a leader? And what do you want your legacy to be as a leader? You know, I... I my legacy as a leader, I, I guess I just hope people keep their hearts open. I think, you know, leaders tend to have staff, people behind them, or followers. You know, that's the concept. A leader has followers. Uh, the follower, if that's the right term, is so much more important than that term suggests. You know, a leader is a person who cultivates relationships of meaning and purpose for others who invites them to see themselves in a role that is meaningful, who says, sets a goal and gets people to see the goal as being powerful and important to them. Um, but in the end of the day, it's all about does do people trust you? Do they see you? And have you kept your heart open? Have you remained tender just as much as you are strong? Have you held a certain gentleness even as you are forceful and firm? Have you created a sense of openness, even as you have to make judgments about uh, which way to go and how to make decisions. I think those are the gifts that are, uh, I think, under-cultivated in leadership. But they've been taught to me by these Special Olympics athletes. You know, who, who would think that a person who's 15 years old, who has an intellectual disability, who might not even be verbal, you know, might not be able to uh, speak, could be a leader? And I tell you, Rob, I've seen it over and over again. That that young person walks into the room and maybe struggles with words, but with her eyes or with his touch or with his body posture or with his vision uh, communicated to all kinds of different ways, that person changes the room, opens people up, brings people to their best selves, makes people walk out going, oh, my God, I am determined to make that difference in the world that he or she would want me to make. Now, you're not going to learn that at the Harvard Business School or West Point. You're going to learn other things that are very valuable, I know, or other business schools and stuff like that, or at big corporations. You might not learn that quality, that openness, uh, that vulnerability, the strength that comes from that vulnerability. But I'll tell you, it's a leadership gift that the world is hungry for, in my view.
Hey everybody, Rob here. Thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Show. If this is your first time listening to us, I wanted to make sure you are aware of a whole group of other interviews with fascinating guests that I've previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org, and there you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country, even from different countries, all trying to make their world better. I think you'll really enjoy those interviews. We want to give you more content, and we'd like to get that information to you. And all you have to do is give us your email. When you go to that website, you can put your email address in that first box you'll see on the front page, and you'll be added to our monthly email update. In addition to some great content, you'll see the latest uh, podcast shows that will be actually sent right to your inbox. And that way you'll never miss any of the great content on this show. The other thing I'll mention to you is if you have questions or comments or you'd like to be on the show, do not hesitate to email me. I'd love to hear from you. Just do that through our website, my email, rob at ccofpc.org. Well, thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. Well, I love how you're reshaping or reframing, if you what it means to be a leader and how you've really honored the dignity of every human being, particularly with what you do through the Special Olympics. So I like how you responded to that way. And that kind of leads me to a philosophical question in what you do there with the Special Olympics. And that's this. As you think about your extensive experience in both the nonprofit world, on the one hand, and the government world, do you believe the most effective way to address society's biggest challenges, whatever they are, should be met primarily through private philanthropy and nonprofits or by government entities, or maybe a combination of them both. I'm curious what you think on that philosophical question. Well, I mean, I think there's, there's, there's nothing that's not a combination. I think, you know, to me, the government is what we do together. Okay, so if you translate government as what we do together, when we need to act as a whole together, we need the government. So we can't solve the problem of the air individually, right? That's something we share. So we need the government. It doesn't mean we don't have an individual responsibility. But if you're not engaged in, in, in the current, uh, in the world in which we live in, if the citizen isn't himself responsible, active, owning their own responsibility for the future, uh, the government can do nothing. Um, so what we do together as the government, what we do individually and, and in small groups as philanthropy must work hand in hand. But I think, you know, I think we're, Rob, I think we, we're in a moment here in the country and maybe even in the world where we have kind of a cultural crisis. We, we don't know how to make the values and beliefs and attitudes that hold us together uh, shared. We've, I've looked at polling, you know, Americans are, believe that we don't respect one another anymore. Many don't respect themselves. There's been uh, so much change in the world that in some ways our culture, our religious values, our institutions haven't kept up with it. The world is smaller. It's more diverse. It's more complicated. It's changing faster. But our institutions haven't given us the values and beliefs and language necessary to adapt to that. And so this is where I come back to the lessons of a Special Olympics athlete. What would a 12-year-old Special Olympics athlete who's just run her race the end of 100 yards, arms up in the air, maybe she came in third. What would she teach us? Uh, what would she teach us about the values and beliefs we need? I think she'd say, meet, first of all. Meet one another. Uh, look at me. I, you're, you and I are meeting. That's how we, we make a difference. That's how we heal. I'd say, think, I think she'd say, don't judge by labels. If you look at her by her label, you would walk past her. But if you look at her at her heart, you would be stunned by the beauty of that person, I suspect. I think she might say uh, everybody has a gift. I think that's something we have to remember in government and in philanthropy. It's not uh, Republicans have gifts or Democrats have gifts or rich or poor have gifts or black or white or 
uh, Latino have gifts. It's not North or South have gifts. Everybody has a gift. And we're all struggling. You know, we all have a lot of pain. I think that's the other thing she'd say. Look, you know, that, that young 12-year-old staring out at this country today has experienced a lot of pain and a lot of struggle, maybe even on her way to that race. Somebody made fun of her. Maybe even on the way to that race, someone pointed at her. Maybe on the way to that race, someone thought, oh, my God, that's so sad. So she's had to deal with a lot of pain, a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of assumptions, and a lot of people who wouldn't meet. I think she'd tell us, whether we're in government or in the private sector, meet, don't judge, be open, celebrate the gifts of everybody. I think that's the level at which all of our institutions need healing. And uh, I hope... In some ways, I hope that opportunities like this give your listeners and people who are so enamored and supportive of your mission there in Salt Lake. Oh, my goodness. Sorry for the loud noise. Uh, not in Salt Lake, in Park City. You know, uh, I hope these messages coming from her, not from me. I'm a conduit. I'm not the messenger. I hope coming from her, from that athlete, yeah, that imaginary athlete standing on but maybe the third place, a metal stand with her arms raised in the air and her mother so proud of her, reminding us that there are beautiful things in all of us uh, and we need a culture, a meaning, a new cultivation of respect and dignity for those values that will enable us to move forward, whether we're in government or in private philanthropy. No, I really like that answer. In fact, I want to get back to that. There's a question I'm going to ask in just a bit uh, to kind of go a little bit deeper, but I love how you describe that. But as I think about like all the different groups you're involved with and all the different nonprofits you've come across, what are the nonprofits today that you admire the most and why? I mean, here's what I admire the most. And I think this is in a lot of organizations. I admire those organizations that recognize that the person on the short end, the person who appears to be down on his luck or down on her luck, appears to be a victim, appears to be uh, struggling, that that person is as much the teacher as the beneficiary. I think we've got to get rid of that idea that there but for the grace of God go. I hear people say that. It just always makes my, my skin crawl a little bit because there but for the grace of God goes your teacher. There, over there. Down, yes, on the, in the homeless uh, shelter, yes, in the women's shelter, yes, the person with the disability, yes, uh, the victim of crime, yes, the perpetrator of that crime. There goes your teacher. There does not go your cause. There doesn't go your uh, sympathy. There goes your teacher. And I noticed this in organizations, and you can see it in the volunteer, in the staff person who doesn't get to work saying, I'm here to help. They get to work saying, I'm here to meet, to connect, to learn, to share, to change. And those not-for-profits that have made that shift from a culture of uh, pity to a culture of empowerment, from a culture of hierarchies to a culture of reciprocity, uh, I think they're close to what we need, both for those who are struggling who don't want a big somebody on a big white horse telling them what they can do for them. Let's be honest. That, that's not very helpful. Any of us who have been down, we don't want someone coming to us saying, hey, I've got the solution for you, or I'm richer than you. or you know, that, that doesn't help. Uh, what helps is encounter, is healing, is respect, is being able to recover your dignity. Because once you've got your dignity back, if a not-for-profit can do that, not just with goods and services, but with relationships and trust and value, 
then we have unlocked the healing, I think, necessary for those who are struggling that so many not-for-profits aim to care for and care about. I love that perspective. I mean, I, you are absolutely right. Uh, it is really difficult. Uh, it's not easy to do, but uh, thank you for the reminder because you're absolutely right. Seeking and honoring everyone's dignity and learning from all those people uh, that you serve and that you may dismiss initially as people that you have nothing to learn from. I think that's a great and healthy perspective. Um, I have a feeling you mentor a lot of different young and emerging leaders. And so as you do that, uh, my question to you, as you talk to our audience today, if you're mentoring a young and emerging leader, what advice would you give to this emerging leader as to what is most important about leadership in your opinion? Well, at a very practical level, I tell young people, your job is not important. Your, your uh, title is not important. Your size of your office is not important. And I dare say, I mean, salary is important to people, but it's not as important as sometimes people think. What's really important is who you work with, who you decide to learn from in your 20s and your 30s especially, but even on into uh, middle age and you know more senior roles. I think who you work with and for is the most important thing. I, I have been blessed in my life to have mentors at every step of the way. I almost never took a job for any reason other than that I was attracted to some person, an individual, who inspired me to think if I were working with him or with her, I would be doing work that mattered. It was the person that mattered to me. To me, that's extremely important. I have a little formula I encourage people to think about. It's, it's partly because it's easy for me to remember. I think leadership is about souls, goals, and roles. It's about finding things that resonate with your deepest identity, your soul, that which matters beyond one moment or one, one uh, space and time, that which uh, animates you to find a purpose larger than yourself. That's the soul level. A goal, a more a practical or tactical level, something you can try to achieve that would make a difference. And then a role. What's your role? How, how are you going to be part of the team? What's, what's your unique contribution? to making things happen. If you know your role and you know what you've got to do to achieve it and you know the goal and you know what's going to happen if you achieve that and you've got your soul in play, your deepest self believes that what you're doing matters, then I think you've got a pretty powerful formula in my experience. And so I tell people to think about roles and souls and goals, but even beyond those somewhat abstract uh, ideals, I, I always say, Find the person who inspires you. Find the person who can teach you. And then, whatever your title, whatever the size of your office, whatever the place of your parking space in the lot, or wherever, you know, those kinds of things that, that do matter. I know they matter, but they don't matter as much as walking into that office and looking across at your colleague or your boss and saying, wow, that person's hot stuff. I can't wait to get to work for him or her today. I love that. That's an interesting perspective. And I love those three things to, to think about. Well, and you touched on this earlier, and I want to go a little bit deeper uh, with what you were talking about earlier. I think everyone would agree that there's some really difficult challenges in our world today, both in our own country and internationally, whether that be economically, socially, politically, etc. And additionally, there does seem to be a growing divisiveness within our own country. You mentioned we just don't respect each other as much. Uh, we're getting into our tribes, if you will, and not looking beyond that. And as you survey our current cultural context, and of course, you travel the world as well, what gives you hope today? Actually, you know, I think uh, a huge, uh, there's a huge amount of hope today. I think the younger generation is the most inclusive generation in history. I think they're the most globally conscious generation in history. I think they're the most creative generation in history, and I think they're the most environmentally conscious generation in history. 
And all that, I think, is the reason we see so much innovation in business. We see so much creativity in the culture. We see so much a change in technology, in education, in uh, the arts, and so on. And I think that's enormously positive. I think many, many people outside the media and political narrative are living richer, deeper, stronger, more powerful, more meaningful lives, families, uh, and so on. So that gives me a lot of hope. I, and I don't think it's just young people, honestly. Uh, it, it, it'd be convenient to say it's all young people. But I think people of my generation, I'm the tail end of the baby boomer generation, I think Republicans and Democrats, uh, rich and poor, I think have done quite a lot to make the country uh, more just. And, you know, we, 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 we hear a lot about the shortfalls, and we should hear about the shortfalls on on race, on gender, on sexual orientation, all those kind of things where we're struggling to make sense of how to find a new pattern in the world. But we shouldn't miss uh, that there are many positive trends going on. The economy is stronger than it's ever been in some respects. Education, graduation rates are good. Crime rates are not as bad as they have been in the past. You know, one crime is one too many. But there's a lot to be grateful for in the country today and in the world. And I think some of the more angry, divisive rhetoric that we're seeing in politics and the media is just that. It's politics and the media. And I, and you know, I hate to say this because I come from a political family and I respect politics, and that's very important to the future of the country and, and the future of the world. Every country's politics is important. But, man, I've turned it off, Rob. I'll be honest. I don't watch cable news at all, not once, not for two minutes. If I walk into a room and it's on, I walk out. Uh, because I have, I believe that there are people there being paid to be angry and mean-spirited and divisive and aggressive toward one another. And the more of that they are, the more uh, they get paid. And so I don't, I don't blame them or I don't want to shame them, but I don't want to watch them. I tell you that, I don't want to watch them, and I don't want to hear about the next fight and the next war and the next battle against some other Americans from either party. I really don't want to hear about it. I want to hear about how we get back together, and we can align ourselves enough to solve big problems. But that's going to take naming the number one problem in the country, which is in the level of our politics and our media. We have turned internal anxiety into external blaming and shaming and demonizing. And it's an old formula. You're a biblical guy. You know, we, we see it in the ancients. Uh, you know, when things get tight, let's find a scapegoat and uh, chase them out of the village or uh, slaughter him for that matter you know this is what we're doing to one another and it's not just republicans it's not just democrats it's, we're scapegoating each other and just blaming each other much too much so i'm i'm done i'm trying to be done with all that and focus on the positive trends in the culture and look every day there in deer valley uh in park city uh where you see people coming in to donate food coming in to grab some food because they need it coming in because they need some diapers coming in to give some diapers, what you're seeing is the best of humanity, people looking out for one another, often, almost always without any credit, uh, almost always without any political party or persuasion, almost always without any need for an award or recognition. What they're doing is recognizing our common humanity, and I think I want to I live where that's my incoming, not that stuff on television and in politics. I want that to be my incoming because I think that feeds the soul and inspires the heart and, uh, you know, trains the mind on things that matter. And uh, that's what I think we need. 
Well, that is a very refreshing take. I mean, I, here's for my listeners. There's some great word of advice to just turn off the cable news uh, and really, but instead recognize the common humanity that we all have and we all share. I love that, actually. And, and you're right. What I get to do at the nonprofit here in Park City every day, we get to see these small little miracles, whether the people that come through that need food or those who give food. And you're right. It's mostly, you know, without much fanfare. I mean, they just do it because they want to be good to their fellow man or woman. And so I love that. I, I think that's a fantastic uh, advice to all of us. I just want to say, you know, we're hungry. You know, you say small, little miracle. Think about that. Is there any miracle that's small? Is there any miracle that's little? No, my goodness. I know why you said it that way, and I would have used the same word. But it's an explosively beautiful experience. And we just have to pay attention. And we can't afford not to pay attention any longer. You know, we, we, we just can't afford not to pay attention to the small, little miracles that are huge and explosive and life-changing. We can't afford to miss them. The planet's too small. There's too many weapons. There's too much violence. There's too much risk. We have to retrain ourselves to spend our time looking at those small, little miracles and with the eyes to see them, to refocus on what matters most in our country, in our communities, in our families, and hopefully usher in a new era. Maybe it's a, a, you know, people talk about people wanting to be spiritual and not religious. I'm not sure if that's the right way to go, but I know a lot of people are spiritual and they don't go to church or they don't belong to a denomination. And a lot of people, you know, love nature and they don't necessarily believe in a particular sacred text. And a lot of people just love their families and, and they don't believe in anything bigger than that. But regardless, in my view, small little miracles are all around us all day long. And we need leaders who can help us stop and see them. And with the eyes that can see those small little miracles, to refocus our energies on what can actually heal our planet and heal our country. I mean, our country needs healing. My goodness. I feel lucky that I have... uh, had my eyes trained by some of the most vulnerable people on earth, people with intellectual disabilities, some of the poorest, most forgotten, most overlooked, most stigmatized people on earth, and they trained me. And I'm still a beginner, but I'm, I'm, uh, uh, they, they've given me a lot of coaching on how to see small little miracles and let them change my life. And I hope others, I hope we can do that for others too. I hope others can be gifted with the same generous spirit that I've been gifted with from these athletes of the Special Olympics movement and that you're doing right there in Park City. Well, I couldn't think of a better way to close out the show. Thank you for sharing that. I think your insights and your words need to be shared with more people. So thank you for all you're doing. And for my listeners again, where can they find out more about you and about the Special Olympics? Where would you send them? Yeah, so I just say specialolympics.org has it all. You can find a local program if you're listening from Kansas or Washington or Florida or Iowa or Utah, you can go there and it'll help you connect to local resources where you can volunteer or, you know, we do 110,000 events every single year. If you can believe that, Rob, they're all run, almost all run by volunteers at the local level. So this weekend, whatever day you're listening to this, this weekend, there's probably a Special Olympics event, a bowling tournament, a basketball game, a swim race, uh, a track meet somewhere near you. Um, so you can find those events and, and just go out and spend an hour. You know, you don't have to do anything. Just sit in the stands, watch, pay attention, 
there will be so many small little miracles bursting around you that you won't, uh, you might, you might just be overwhelmed as many of us have been and walk out maybe with a tear in your eye, uh, maybe with your heart cracked open and maybe with a new sense of what's possible if we, if we love and respect one another. Well, again, my guest today has been Timothy Shriver. He has been both CEO and chairman of the Special Olympics for over 25 years. He currently leads the International Board of Directors for the Special Olympics and serves together with over 5.6 million Special Olympic athletes in 172 countries. Well, Tim, thank you so much again for being on the show. Thanks for all you're doing. You have created quite a legacy, and I really appreciate you taking time to be on the show. Thank you for having me, and thank you for all you're doing, and may continue. I wanted to let you know that we are on iTunes. If you are wondering how to find out where we are, check us out on iTunes by typing Nonprofit Leadership Podcast or Rob Harder, and this podcast should show up. We also encourage you, when you go on iTunes, let us know what you think. Give us a review. Give us a rating. We would love to hear what you think of this podcast, and your feedback will help us expand this podcast to get it out to as many people as we can. You can also go online to listen to this podcast, either nonprofitleadershippodcast.org or my website, robharder.com. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep making your world better.